Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gift of this day, the gift of this Easter day. We're still in the Easter octave, and this Easter season, where we remember the culminating and central event of our faith that sparked everything, the resurrection, Lord, and the promise that we, too, will rise one day with you for eternity in heaven. And we thank you, Lord, for that hope. We thank you for that goal to work toward each and every day to follow you more faithfully. And we pray tonight as we dive into your word, we would be challenged, comforted, uh, given answers to our questions on that journey to continue following you, that we would be met with your inspiring, your humbling, your peaceful presence. And we ask, Lord, that all the ways in which we may be distracted, worried, anxious, uh, whatever it might be that might be drawing us away from our time together this evening, that you would just remove those things from our hearts, give us a spirit of peace and focus, and we lay all those things at your feet, as well as all of our intentions. For those who we've promised prayers to, all of the things going on in our lives in the midst of this coming week, uh, we just lay it all before you and ask that your will be done. And pray especially that to be true tonight as we dive into your word. Speak to us through it. Allow this to be renewed as if we're hearing these words for the first time and allow them to inspire us in new ways to be people of resurrection, joy, and hope. We pray all these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome, new faces and regular faces. Good to see you. Um, not that your faces are regular, but meaning you've been here before. Um, we're in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31 tonight. There's Bibles over here. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the second Sunday of Easter, but is also known as Divine Mercy Sunday, which is a feast that was instituted by Pope John Paul II, uh, I believe, uh, as a uh, way to finish the Easter octave. So if you don't know this, then in the Catholic Church, we celebrate Easter as eight days. So today is still technically Easter Sunday for eight days, and this harkens back to our Jewish brothers and sisters Anytime in the Old Testament when something really important was happening, instead of making it one holy day, it was eight holy days. And so we do that for Easter and for Christmas. And so it's still Easter, and uh, that begins the entire Easter season of 50 days that we're in to celebrate the joy, the hope, the beauty of the resurrection. And so that's what we're in the midst of, and that ends this coming Sunday on Divine Mercy Sunday when we are reminded of um, Jesus' revelation of mercy, particularly through the revelations of St. Faustina uh, and her uh, reflections in her diary. And so if you want to find out more about that, you can look up Divine Mercy. Uh, there's a whole novena and a chaplet of Divine Mercy that you can be praying this week uh, to prepare for that upcoming Sunday. But this is the gospel reading that we will hear proclaimed at Mass this Sunday, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31, the appearance to the disciples and the uh, story of Thomas doubting. 
So first time through, we're going to read this, and I just invite you to clear your mind of any previous notion of this passage. Clean slate, pretend you've never heard this before, you don't know what's going on, what anyone looks like, what is about to happen at all, and allow this to be a blank canvas in your mind, the story being painted for the first time in your mind as you hear it tonight. So John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger into the nail marks, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and bring your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that you have that scene in your mind, we're going to read through this a second time. And the second time through, as always, I want to invite you to listen very carefully, try and clear your mind now of anything but the words that you are hearing, and see if any particular word or phrase just strikes you, if it resonates with you for any reason. So it could spark a memory, it could be something that is unrelated to this passage, but really connects to you. Hold on to what that is, because we believe that's the way that the Lord, the Holy Spirit is trying to speak to you through this passage. So it could be a seemingly insignificant word or detail but just try and hang on to that and ask, why is this standing out? Why is this striking me in this way? What is the Lord trying to tell me through this? So let's listen for those things more deeply as we read through this one more time. John 20, starting verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. 
Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger into the nail marks, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and bring your hand and put it into my side. and Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you now to look back over this passage briefly, the things that stood out to you. Reflect on them for a moment, and you'll turn to those around you and just share what stood out to you or any questions that this reading posed in you, any details that you noticed or things you're curious about. If you're watching this on Zoom, feel free to share those in the chat. Katie will make sure they're shared. Or if you're watching this on YouTube later, do that in the comments. But for those of us here, uh, just spend about five or ten minutes just sharing with those around you what stood out, what questions you have, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group. All right. I'd love to hear some of your reflections, questions. So, uh, what things stood out to you and why? Or you can just say what stood out to you, or what questions do you have about this particular reading? Katie, you want to share people on Zoom or saying? Okay. So, uh, I have two people. So, Paul was just sharing that it appears that Jesus showed up a second time specifically to ensure that Thomas got the evidence he needed to believe mm -hmm. and that it was such a very, it was a very personal response to mm -hmm. Thomas. Um, and then Michelle was just sharing that believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through his, this belief you may have life in his name, that it's our faith in a nutshell, that it's yeah. our faith in 22 simple words. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. Thank you both. And I would agree, Paul, with what you said that even post-resurrection, Jesus seems particularly concerned with the unity of the apostles, that that would be preserved, that he has a specific office intended to them. He didn't just choose random, insignificant people. Like He chose a specific number of people and specific people for specific roles in a church that had a hierarchical nature so that he could give them authority, and he even wanted in his resurrection to make sure that they were still all on the same page. I think that's very significant that he does that. Um, so yeah, very personal, but also very intentional to ensure that um, the church 
the beginnings of the church, and the 12 apostles remained intact. Because without this moment, if Thomas had just gone off, Thomas is believed, I, I think, to have gone to India and to have started the Christian churches in India, and the whole Syro-Malabar Catholic Church in India wouldn't have existed without um, Thomas's witness. And so it's a whole, you know, one of the most populated countries on the entire planet, you know, would not know Jesus in the way that they do now, simply without this, these like 10 verses, you know. Yeah. So if this is an accurate depiction of what happened, mm -hmm. not a symbolic one, you know, we always have this, this spinning that mark, this depiction of Jesus coming on a cloud, mm -hmm. down to heaven. Doors were closed. Mm -hmm. It just appeared. Yeah. So maybe, just maybe, heaven's another dimension. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. But one other thing here too, in 23, and I wish, I wish this was, this point was made more often. This is the the biblical foundation of the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. It is right there. Yeah. And we as Catholics have sacraments that are based on the Bible, mm -hmm. and that's one of the things we don't message enough out in the real world. I think. Sure. So, I wish maybe that we can get some more. Apologetic themes, you know, like mm -hmm. the pulpit every once in a while. So yeah. we can reinforce that. So we can bring that up to our Protestant brothers and sisters when they think don't believe that we're biblically founded. Sure, yeah. Yeah, the, the sacraments are a really important aspect of Catholicism because it's a ways that the church teaches in which God wants to give us his grace. You know, that we we do have access to God in prayer, but he specifically wanted to imbue us with his grace, his very life in us in particular ways through tangible, visible signs. And all of those are in scripture. He institutes them. He gives instructions to specific people, to the apostles with their authority, he gives them specific authority to administer these so that people will be in covenant relationship with God, very much in line with the types of relationships God wanted to have with us in the Old Testament. Um, and he sets that up very intentionally. And yeah, one of the uh, sacraments, the sacrament of penance, con confession, reconciliation, uh, we have evidence for here in verse 23, uh, and many other places in scripture as well. So I'll talk a little bit about that uh, as well. But yeah, thanks. Katie. I like how in um, verse 22, he, Jesus breathes on them, mm -hmm. like how God breathed into Adam, mm -hmm. we talked about this a little bit last week because last week we talked about Jesus the tomb being found empty right was the, the gospel reading we had yesterday and there's a section in the middle that we don't read and that's Jesus encountering Mary Magdalene in the garden the garden tomb and he calls her woman exactly what Adam calls Eve in the garden and there's this redemption that happens in the garden and a renewal of what went wrong in a garden in Genesis and now we have more garden language of Jesus breathing on the apostles, just as God breathed life into Adam. The word breath in Hebrew is ruah. In um, Greek, it's pneuma. And in Latin, it's spiritu. It all means spirit or Holy Spirit is where we get the words for the Holy Spirit, literally signified by breath. And in fact, the name of God in the Old Testament that we're given in Exodus chapter 3, when, Jesus, when God appears to Moses as, as the burning bush, and he says, uh, Moses says, if I'm going to go back to Egypt, who should I say sent me? And he says, um, I tell them, I am has sent you 
uh, to them. I am who am. And that in Hebrew uh, is et yashere which translates to Y-H-W-H, where we get the word Yahweh. But in Hebrew, those letters, Y-H-W and H, are all breathing syllables. So they're all yod he vav he. That's how you would say the name of God, but you can't say you can't string those together. It's like a breathe talking. It's yod he vav he. It's like how you it's like you have to breathe. So like the very act of breathing itself is something for the Jewish people that they would have known in their language is very sacred. It, it signifies the, the actual presence and life of God is very name. And so anytime you see breathing in scripture, there's not only the significance of a conferring of the Holy Spirit, but it's actually like the presence of God, presence of his spirit. If you've ever met anyone or have friends or family who are from the Middle East or in Arabic countries, they stand very close and they, because there's a sign that if you can feel the breath of the other person, it's a sign of blessing. You know, to us in like Western cultures, that's like horrifying, right? And especially in like a COVID pandemic world. But like that's seen as like a very, you're breathing peace on another person. It's seen, it's seen as a very intimate form of friendship. Um, and then we think it's just like, why is this person such a close talker? You know, like we don't get it. But it comes from this like, this tradition of like breathing on another person is giving them blessing, is giving them a share in your spirit, is giving them good things. And so we have that in Genesis. And then what do we also have in Genesis? When Adam, in chapter 2 of Genesis, when Adam, he can't find a suitable partner for himself among the animals, right? He says, no one here is like me. Nothing here is like me. What does God do? He puts him into a slumber, and he takes a rib out of his what? His side. And what happens to Jesus on the cross? His side is pierced, and out of his side flows blood and water, the fluids that signify life. If you've ever witnessed a child being born, as I have both my two children, it's a signifier of new life. And so what went wrong in the garden, which was supposed to be this beautiful life in the context of a garden, is redeemed in a garden by Jesus, the new Adam, calling Mary Magdalene woman, the signifier of Eve, making right, making unified what was broken. And that being ratified here in this moment where he confers new breath, new creative life and power on the new church. And out of his side comes witness of the new life of the, the life that's going to exist in, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like all of this, we don't know the Old Testament. We don't know how they tie together and how this language is used. We miss a lot of that beautiful imagery that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, exactly what he intended. I was listening today about um, on a podcast about it says in Scripture that when Jesus was during Holy Week, when he was in Jerusalem, that the Pharisees had already decided that they wanted to condemn him to death. But there's this detail in the Bible that says they wanted to wait until after the festival. Heard this? Wanted to wait until after the festival to not provoke a riot, right? But at the Last Supper, Jesus gives the morsel to Judas and he says, Go and do what you must. Jesus actually sparks and puts in motion the events that will ensure that his crucifixion happens during the festival. Because he knows what he's doing. He's instituting a new Passover, a new way in which we're meant to be in relationship with God. So all of this like comes together to show like God is he was playing the long game from day one, you know, from the Garden of Eden. He knew exactly what he was doing. And even though sin derailed the plan and took that line of God's plan and made it crooked, God can always write with crooked lines. Like he can always make it come back together. And so that all that coming together with what Katie was saying about. This, this Adam imagery and Jesus being the new Adam, redeeming what went wrong in the Garden of Eden is such a beautiful point to really focus in on here. And it's the same thing about bringing and reconciling back 
into the 12 Thomas, because we don't want any distortion. We don't want anyone broken away from the plan of God at this point. We want to bring everyone into the fold. And so the witness of the apostles wanting to go get their brother Thomas, wanting to go witness to him, wanting to bring him back, that's all part of that, that beautiful plan. So, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Good stuff. Matt? So yesterday at Easter, I went to St. Tim's for Easter and I also went to the service at the Saddleback. So it's kind of funny. Um, They're talking about um, intercession and how uh-huh. Jesus intercedes for us and the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, they were like, you know, early traditions, they say, like, you know, they pray to Mary, pray to all the saints for intercession. It's like, why would we, like, they're saying, but why would we have, like, other people intercede for us when have Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So they're basically saying, like, why pray to the saints? Mm-hmm. But then I thought it was interesting with uh, verse 22, when it says, receive the Holy Spirit, you forget the sins that are given. Mm-hmm. It's like, through the Holy Spirit, it's like, we can all, you know, intercede for each other. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was just interesting. I wrote on the notes, like, why can't we pray for other people? Like, why can't we pray through the Holy Spirit? So yeah. it was cool that today, that kind of popped out. Yeah, it's interesting that it seems logical to think that, like, we just need direct access to God, right? Just me and Jesus, that should make the most sense. But in essence, what the Holy Spirit does is it makes us all mediators. It makes us all able to bring grace to other people. So it's kind of like the idea of, like, if I'm trying to move a refrigerator, okay? I'm trying to move a refrigerator in my house, and my three-year-old daughter comes up and says, Daddy, I'm going to help you. And she starts trying to push on the refrigerator. She's not helping, right? She's not moving the refrigerator. But is that making that experience richer and more beautiful? Absolutely. And in a sense, that's kind of what the Holy Spirit does. Like God could do all of this by himself, but he desires for us as his children to be part of it because it enriches the love, the intimacy, and the beauty that we can all have in co-creating with him bringing other people into this and making it a wider family. That's the beautiful thing about being Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. You know, James Joyce once said, uh, Catholic means here comes everybody. You know, it's like this, the whole, everyone is welcome. All are welcome at the table. That's why the Eucharist, the image of the Eucharist is a family meal. Eucharist means Thanksgiving. And if you've ever been to a family Thanksgiving, here comes everybody. Like whether we like them or want to have a two hour conversation with that weird uncle or not, like everyone is there. And that's just part of what it means to be family. And it's the same thing that Jesus intended. Like, even though it's messier with more people, even though the teachings of the church are perfect because they come from Jesus, the people who run the church are not because we're messy sinners. And yet, God allows us to be part of this. And how cool is that? You know, even Thomas, in his unbelieving, is brought back and allowed to be part of this. Even the apostles, in all the ways they abandoned Jesus, all of them left him. All of them abandoned him. You know, we believe that John, if he was the disciple whom Jesus loved, recorded in the Gospel of John, he was there at the foot of the cross, but all the rest of them, nowhere to be found. Peter denying Jesus three times, becomes the leader of the early church. Like, there is no place we can go where we are beyond redemption. If we come back to him, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he will still find a place for us, a home for us here in the church, which is really beautiful. John? I I like this beginning of this uh, greeting that Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them peace be with you and it just occurs to me that we have the Holy Spirit just here in our midst mm-hmm. and I know in my we had a bunch of family over for on, on uh, 
as I'm used to on Sunday. And several little, uh, some of the youngest ones, listen to them, but everybody, there's a lot of havoc and confusion. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, all of a sudden, I just felt good about it. Yeah. And somehow, the house still stood when they all left. <laughs> Sometimes I get real anxious or nervous when there's a lot of stuff going on. But there were, I'm not quite sure what exactly happened. I think one of the young, the young kind of men that was there for the first time was all of a sudden trying to be fatherly with this three and a half year old that wasn't looking for anybody to be particularly fatherly. Yeah. It, it was just nice. Mm. And Pete had Peace be with you became like a real feeling inside, you know, like you're, you're relaxed. Yeah. This, this is good. Yeah. I like that word havoc. Yeah. I think like Pentecost, I imagine, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost was like holy havoc. Yeah. You know, like a strong driving force in a wind and tongues as of fire, like a bonfire, licking flames appearing in this room. That's holy havoc. You know, nobody would have been like everything is normal in that situation. All the images we see of Pentecost are terrible because everyone's just like, mm, I'm so holy. And there's fire above my head. Like, I'd be freaking out, peeing my pants. Like, it would be nuts, you know? And so, like, holy, I love that, just idea of holy havoc. Especially in the moments of life that are messy, right? That the Holy Spirit is there. Jesus is there in our messiest moments. And if you show up here week after week at church feeling like you've got to put on a perfect face, where everything in your life has to be all together, you have to have everything all figured out to get this Jesus thing right, like, this, this gospel passage is a good reminder to us, like, Jesus comes to you right as you are, like, he's saying, like, no, like, I'm here in the midst of the mess of your life, and I want to want to bring new life, hope, faith, beauty to it. Uh, you don't have to have it all figured out. Like, he's taking care of you, you know, and I, just, I love that. I love that reminder of that in this. There's so much messiness in this passage, and Nobody bothers to try and explain it away. You know, I love that in the Gospels too, right? It's not like someone secretly found out about what Thomas did and the word got out that he doubted. Like they willingly put it in here to remind us that even in messiness, Jesus comes and what does he proclaim? Peace be with you. Stands in our midst in the messiness and the holy havoc of our lives. Like that's a really beautiful thing to offer him. I love that. Other questions? Things stand out? Yeah, Pam. So the disciples are locked in a room, and it said for fear of the Jews. Mm -hmm. So why? Is it just because of everything that just happened? Yeah, everything that had happened, there was um, a belief that the same thing was going to happen to them, that the, the, the Jews, meaning not all the Jewish people, John uses the phrase the Jews to signify particularly the Pharisees and the elders, okay. who uh, specifically put Jesus to death. Yeah. So if you remember the encounter where Peter follows Jesus when he's arrested, uh, that's why he denies Jesus three times because they're like, you're with him. You're one of them. And he feels like he's going to, it seems as though he feels like he's going to get caught up in the persecution. And so that same mentality seemed to be in the air. Um, there's actually a verse um, in the uh, non-biblical um, early Christian writing called the Gospel of Peter, where it says that there was an accusation going around, a false accusation against the apostles that the followers of Jesus and the apostles had tried to set fire to the temple. And that was a rumor going around to get people to try and find them and arrest them and bring them in so they too could be punished, so they could kind of quelch this Jesus uh, um, 
ministry that had begun and had all this word that Jesus had risen from the dead. So they were hiding for fear for many of those reasons, for their own lives, you know. And they had not yet received the Holy Spirit, you know. And so the Holy Spirit does wonders for us when it comes to fear. You know, it doesn't mean that we won't be afraid, but uh, we are lacking severely in our ability to answer the call of whatever God is calling us to do if we are not, if we've not received the Holy Spirit and we're not open to the Holy Spirit animating our lives. And so, um, yeah, all of that's at play here. Any other thoughts? Awesome. Well, let's go through this a little bit more line by line and draw out some more things from this passage. Thank you so much for your reflections and questions. If more come up as we kind of um, go through this a little in a little more detail, please feel free to, to raise your hand and let me know. Um, so in verse 19, we have on the evening of that first day of the week. So this is the day of the resurrection. Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, he's only appeared to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene has reported that to the apostles. Um, and then in this account that we read um, yesterday, Peter and John have gone to the tomb, or Peter and it's believed to be John, have gone to the tomb, seen that Jesus is not there, but no one has encountered the risen Lord yet in the account of Gospel of John except for Mary Magdalene. So she's reported that back to the disciples. She has said in the verse prior to this, 18, went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and what he told her. But we don't know yet if they believe her. We don't know yet if they believe her. We do have a clue that John, or the disciple whom Jesus loved, believed her because it says, in verse 8 of this chapter, um, he saw and believed. Okay, They did not yet know that Jesus was meant to rise from the dead. They weren't expecting that, even though Jesus like seems as though he directly told them that over and over and over and over again. It seems obvious to us because we know the end of the story. But at this point in human history, nobody had ever risen from the dead before. It wasn't a really common thing to expect. You know, Nobody was really thinking that was possible or going to happen. Jesus resuscitated some people miraculously in his ministry, like Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, um, and I think the centurion's servant. But um, no one had risen self, in, in their own power, risen from the dead, ever. So there wasn't really an expectation of that. And it says in Scripture, no one can say that Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus is God himself, without the Holy Spirit. So because they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit, there was still this confusion, this misunderstanding. Do we believe? What is that? This word belief shows up everywhere in the Gospel of John. And the word belief in the Gospel of John is usually synonymous or the same as the word faith in Greek. It's the word pistos or pistis. And it means uh, to have faith or really to trust. To trust that something is, is true. Uh, to have a deep reliance on. So that's the word that, that is used here. And so we'll come back to that. Um, but that's a really important theme throughout this whole entire Gospel. And it, it comes to play here in this particular uh, passage in the scene with Thomas. But that's where we are. It's on the evening of that first day. That's what's happened so far. And the doors are locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Okay, the doors are locked, similar to the way the tomb was locked, in a sense. Okay, it seemed as though the story was over. It seemed as though everything was hopeless. They didn't know what to do next. Jesus was not with them. And then all of a sudden... Jesus came and stood in their midst. No detail as to how, but we do know that Jesus in his resurrected body has the ability to 
be unconfined or unbound by the laws of matter, space, and time. He's able to travel long distances very quickly. We see this in the Gospel of Luke, where he's with the, the people on the road to Emmaus, breaking bread with them in the evening, and then all of a sudden, he's appearing to the disciples back in Jerusalem, miles away. And so it's a key to us as to what the resurrected life and our resurrected bodies will be capable of. You know, no longer bound by normal laws of physics and things like that. He comes in their midst and he says to them, so he stands in their midst, comes to them as they are, in their mess, in their grief, think of everything that they're thinking. Okay, everything that they're thinking. I always come back to the fact at the Last Supper where Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And I wholeheartedly believe, I mean, we ought, when we hear that, we automatically think who? Judas. Judas. I think they all thought it was them. I think every single one of the apostles thought, I'm the betrayer. Because all of them, except for John, abandoned Jesus, betrayed Jesus, denied Jesus. They weren't there. And so imagine a room full of people who think they're the betrayer. They're the reason that their Savior, the one who claimed to be God and did all these miraculous things, who was a father and a friend to them for years, is now dead and has been tortured and killed in the most horrific way because the Romans had perfected the model of crucifixion, perfected that level of torture to inflict the most pain humanly possible on a person before they died. Blaming themselves for that, knowing that there's this growing opposition to Jesus' ministry that they're now associated with, and they don't have the power or the abilities or the knowledge that their teacher had. And there seems like there's no way out. Hopeless, completely in despair. Jesus comes to them in that place. Not when they've got it all figured out, not when they pull themselves up by the bootstraps and say, let's go gang, let's get out there and tell the world about Jesus. No, like they're in their lowest place. And that's the beauty of Easter Sunday, because it reminds us that in our Good Friday moments, in our Holy Saturday moments, where we just feel like in the tomb, lost, not knowing what to do next, Jesus is going to come and meet us there. And what does he say? Well, he doesn't say what probably we would have said, right? If it were me and the people that I was telling, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, do this, do that, weren't getting it, weren't getting it, over and over and over again, they betray me, they leave me. If I were to show up resurrected, I mean, I at least would have been like, told you so. Like, I would not, you know, that would be the first thing, or be like, you guys, you, you have some stuff coming to you, like, what comes around goes around. Like, I don't think I would have been able to hold in, because I'm not Jesus, obviously. But what does Jesus say? Does he hold it against them? Does he speak anger, bitterness, resentment? No, he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. How beautiful that is. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Our sins put him there. The brokenness of humanity put him there. And he willingly chose to do that for us. And in all the ways he could say, this is your fault. You did this to me. Make it personal. He doesn't. Because he did it sacrificially out of love for us. And even in that dark place where he could make it worse, where he could really press that button or dig in that knife into that grief, he says, peace. That word in Greek is irene, which is the equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom, peace or wholeness, a sense of restoration that he's speaking to them. Peace be with you. There's three iterations of that phrase here, and I think they're all for a particular purpose. This first peace be with you is, I think, to settle their grief, their worry. Now they see Jesus like, uh-oh, are we going to get our comeuppance? You know, is the lightning and the thunder and the fire and brimstone going to come down? No, peace 
be with you, to settle their hearts and to help them to be unafraid. Then when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now imagine that. That's kind of almost like digging in the wound. Like, hey, this is what happened to me. But I still come to, to speak peace. Not to say I told you so. Not to speak judgment. Not to come in anger. Not to have you have pity on me. Or make you feel sorrier or guiltier than you already feel. Peace be with you. He showed them his hands and his side. We've already talked about the significance of the side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. This is actually a promise that Jesus makes in John chapter 16. He makes two promises, actually, in these whole Last Supper discourses. So it's like John 13 through 17 or so. John has this, uh, Jesus has these long teachings with the disciples, and he makes certain prophecies or promises. So the first one, John 14, verse 27 he tells them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. Promises the Holy Spirit to them right before that. Okay, I've told you this while I am with you, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, that the Father will send in my name. He will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. Peace I leave with you. So he predicts the fact that the Holy Spirit's going to come and with it is going to be peace. Okay, he promises them that. And then in John 16, verse 20, he promises them this. Amen, amen, I say to you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will become joy. Just when everyone thinks they've won and they've defeated what I've come to do, that will become joy for you. Joy is around the corner. So he makes these two specific promises. Both of them we see fulfilled here. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Imagine that moment. Imagine that moment, just that huge turning around, that transformative moment. I use this, I use this story all the time, so forgive me if I, if I, if I you know, I'm getting a dead horse here, but I love professional wrestling as a kid, and so if you heard me talk about this, just bear with me, but in professional wrestling, every wrestler has like a theme song, and they have this persona, and when their music hits, their music hits, and these graphics hit the screen, and you know that they're coming, and you get, like, really excited. But the really cool thing is, like, there'll be these, like, storylines. You know, like, professional wrestling is, like, an athletic soap opera. You know, it's, like, all this, like, scripted, dramatic stuff. So there's all these storylines, and they culminate with some big match. And then the person who loses, like, maybe they'll disappear for a while, maybe, like, months. And then all of a sudden, some big, like, moment will happen on the weekly show or at the next pay-per-view or something, and that music will hit. You're like, oh, my gosh. They're back. Where have they been? I totally forgot that they weren't around. And you get, like, so excited. And I remember my favorite wrestler of all time was The Undertaker. And The Undertaker was gone for a very, very, very long time. And nobody expected him to come back. And there was this pay-per-view where his brother Kane was wrestling. And all of a sudden, The Undertaker had the coolest entrance ever. The whole arena would go dark. And then this, like, bell would toll. And then these pyres of fire would come up, and he would come out this long-brimmed hat with his black trench coat and a smoke machine. And he would just be, like, floating out and come up, and he would just barely see his gaze. And it was, like, the most eerie, cool thing you've ever seen. And he had probably the longest entrance of anyone in history. And I couldn't tell it to you in perfect detail because he's my favorite, but I won't. But I imagine, like, that's the moment that they're experiencing here. Like, Jesus walks in, and it's like the music hits, and they're like, no way. Like, he's back. You know, that level of rejoicing. Probably, like, dancing, like, embracing one another. You know, excited for what is going to happen. 
But then Jesus says to them again, peace be with you. But he says it to them a second time for a particular reason. And if you read the scene in between these two Gospels from yesterday and today, the one where he encounters Mary Magdalene, there's this weird verse where Mary Magdalene embraces Jesus, and Jesus says to her, stop holding on to me. It's very weird. You know, we think like everyone has lost Jesus. Mary Magdalene, one of his devoted followers, embraces him, and he says, no, no touchy. Like, <laughs> stop it, gross. You know, like, no, it seems like very, like, not Jesus-y, right? Like, not loving. But it's because what he's trying to tell Mary Magdalene is like, no, things are not going to be how they were before. I'm not back to do what we were doing. I'm back to do something new. And so he's preparing the apostles here the second time around for what is about to happen. So he says to them again, peace be with you. Why? Because as the Father has sent me to die, to be persecuted, for the salvation of mankind, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Your mission is going to be the same as mine. To bring this message to a culture, to a world that may be very averse to it, that may not want to hear it, that may stone you, persecute you, seek to kill you in very horrific ways. And so you need to be reminded in those moments that my peace, my shalom, my wholeness is with you. And how does, what does he do? He ratifies that by breathing upon them. He breathed on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He gives them what they now need to fulfill that mission, to do the things they couldn't do before. This is why the apostles so many times could not get it, because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the giver of truth. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps us reveal to ourselves and to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, as scripture says, no one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord without the Holy Spirit. So if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we will never fully understand that Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit helps us do that. That's why we need the sacraments. The sacraments are how we receive the Holy Spirit in our baptism, our confirmation, all of that. And so we begin to really know and experience that. And then what does he promise? He authoritatively gives them this authority. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. This is one of the biblical roots for the sacrament of confession. The practice that we have as Catholics, where yes, if you excuse me, if you commit a small sin, what's called a venial sin, you can go to God in prayer and just say, I'm sorry. You can confess that in prayer. You can go to Mass, receive the Eucharist, and that will forgive that sin. You can pray a rosary, you can say the confidior, you can make the sign of the cross with holy water at Mass. Your venial sins are forgiven like seven times at Mass from the different things that we do. If you hear the gospel proclaimed, because I, I read the gospel to you twice, your venial sins have been forgiven twice tonight, and you probably didn't even know. Like, that's how often they're forgiven. Okay, so our small sins, we can go to God in prayer. But our serious sins, which are called mortal sins, they cause a separation between us and God. They're so serious that we need to be reconciled to God. And because our sins affect everyone around us, we also need to be reconciled to the community. And there's only one person who's a representative of both God and the community and has the authority to speak on both, both's behalf, and that is the person of the priest in his ministry. So we have the practice of going to confession to repent and to receive that forgiveness and be restored into right relationship with God and the community. And the authority for that comes here. Jesus specifically gives it to them. This was not anything that existed before. In fact, it says in the Gospel of Mark, uh, where is this, chapter 2, do I have this marked? Maybe I don't. 
I don't. Well, it says in Mark chapter 2, I believe, um, that God heals the paralytic. And he says, um, rise, take up your mat and walk. Your sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisees were overhearing him. They say, this man is speaking blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That was the belief. Only God himself has the authority to forgive sins. And so Jesus is speaking this into being. He is not only claiming to be God, but then he is giving divine authority and sharing his divine identity with those that he is putting in charge of the church that he is founding. And he's giving them the ability to do that. It's not just something anybody can do, but it's a command that he gives, and with it comes a specific level of authority to those he chooses to entrust it to. So we have some evidence for that here in many other places in Scripture. Uh, James chapter 5, we have it in Matthew chapter 16, many other places. Yes? Holy Spirit, but, and so they have some partial understanding, and then when the when Pentecost comes, and they receive the Holy Spirit again, we have more understanding? Uh, okay, so, yeah, so the, in terms of any time we, we hear the, the apostles receiving the Holy Spirit from Jesus, theologically we're meant to understand all of those instances as the Pentecost event. But the Feast of Pentecost, when we hear that account, is in Luke's account, because Luke wrote Acts of the Apostles, and that's in Acts chapter 2. So we don't believe that there was a partial giving of the Spirit and later a full giving of the Spirit. We believe that John is writing this giving of the Spirit in a particular way to show unity of the Apostles and the authority of the Apostles. But just like there are many different things that don't necessarily line up chronologically in Scripture, because the author is trying to convey something, so he moves things out of place, to try and do things for emphasis. We think that John is doing that here, that this is the Pentecost event. Whenever Jesus breathes on them or gives them the Holy Spirit, that that is considered a singular event that John is placing before the actual event to make a point. Does that make sense? Yeah, so many theologians don't believe we should break them up. Um, I think it doesn't. it's not as... Is bad if you think that, okay, he gave, gave a little Holy Spirit here and then he gives a little more later. You know, we have that in the sacraments, right? When you're baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. But when you're confirmed, you receive a fuller sharing in the Holy Spirit so that you can then go and uh, exercise the particular gifts and talents God has given you to live out whatever your mission is to share and defend the faith. And so the analogy I use is that when you're baptized, you download like the free trial version of a program. You can use a little bit of it, but when you're confirmed, you get the access code and you get the full Holy Spirit program. And you can use it all, all of its features in all of its entirety, okay? So it's the same thing. So we could, I don't think it's bad to think that God began to help them understand and gave them the Holy Spirit um, a little like, you know, almost in a baptismal way. And then at Pentecost was when the fullness of the Holy Spirit comes upon them to then go and, and lead the early church now that he's ascended into heaven. However, I've just seen that many theologians write about this, biblical theologians, to say it, some, it, you, you tread on some uh, difficult water if you start to separate them and think of them as divorced from the one main giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But they're all meant to kind of lead toward that or speak to the, the one giving of the Holy Spirit, you know, of Jesus to the apostles, even though it's written about in different ways or in different pieces, we could say. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Um, all right, yes? Can you build upon, like, the cultural, historical background of Pentecost, like, before Jesus? Yeah, so Pentecost was a traditional Jewish feast 
is called the Feast of Weeks. And at Pentecost, I'm trying to remember what happens. It's not the Feast of Booths. I believe it's the Feast of um, First Fruits, same as the Feast of the First Fruits. So it's when the harvest was about to begin. And you would give ever, the first fruits of your harvest, you would bring to the temple and you would offer them to the Lord. And so the image of Pentecost is that we offer the first of everything to the God, to God. And through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, he bears, we bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit out in the world. So the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, uh, love, joy, peace, goodness, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, self-control, chastity, <clears throat> modesty, all those things we all want and that are good and positive and beautiful in the world. We bear those things out. So there's a pre-existing feast in the Old Testament that happened 50 days, I think, after some point, because Pentecost means 50 days. Um, and so it's believed that that giving of the Holy Spirit happened during that particular feast. Awesome. So we get this little encounter here with Thomas. Uh, Thomas called Didymus. Didymus means twin. Uh, so we either believe that Thomas had a twin sibling, or it's a nickname given to him because of kind of his twin nature. I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, he was one of the 12, one of the 12 apostles, and he was not with them. Okay, so there was still division. There was still not unity. Um, there were 10 of the 12 apostles because Judas wasn't there in his first account. Uh, but the apostles, they want unity. So they go to him, just as Mary Magdalene came to them and say, we've seen, we've seen the Lord. And then he says this, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hand and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not have faith. I will not trust. And I've talked about this before. I think it's unfair that Thomas is called Doubting Thomas. I think Thomas should more so be called like Hopeless Thomas or Despairing Thomas because we have a few other instances of Thomas in the Gospels. This is the Thomas um, who we're dealing with here. This is in uh, John chapter 11, verse 6, when they're going back to Jerusalem uh, or in the region of Judea, and the other apostles are like, we can't go back there because Jesus might get killed, we might die. Then um, they say, Rabbi, the Jews were just trying to stone you, and you want to go back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day of one blah, 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 blah. Um, so Thomas, this is in verse 16, Thomas called Didymus, says to his fellow disciples, let us also go to die with him. Like, Thomas is ready. Everyone else is like, Jesus, don't go. Like, you're going to die. And Thomas is like, all right, let's go. Like, post up, come on. Like, let's go. Let's go fight him. You know, he's ready to follow Jesus. And then later on in John, where is this? John chapter 14, verse 5, in the Last Supper discourses, Jesus starts saying, where I am going, you know the way telling him about the death that he's going to die. And then Thomas says to him, Master, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? It's this almost a sense of desperation, like, we want to be with you. Like, where are you going? Tell us. And so I particularly think that Thomas, he says this not because he's doubting. He said this because he's in such despair at the loss of his Savior. He cannot bring himself to believe that Jesus is back to risk losing him again unless he sees it with his own eyes. That's how much he loved him. That's how much all the apostles loved him the place of despair they were in. So it shows why there's so much joy in the apostles, the rest of the apostles, when they see that that has happened, but also why it's so difficult for Thomas to believe. And this is now a week later, which is, it actually says in the original, after eight days, which will be this coming Sunday, Divine Mercy Sunday. The disciples were again, Thomas is with them, the doors were locked, stands in their midst and says again, peace be with you. This time to Thomas to put peace in his grieving, despairing heart. And then he says, 
Put your finger here, bring your hand, put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, not doubting, but unbelieving. It's a stronger word. Do not be anti-trusting, anti-faithful, but believe. And then Thomas answers with probably the most profound confession as to who Jesus is in all of Scripture. My Lord, my God, my personal Lord, the word there translates to the word Yahweh, and God to Elohim, the two words that are used to describe God in all of the Old Testament, encapsulated in this one confession of St. Thomas, my Lord and my God. And notice, Jesus offers, put your hands here. Does Thomas do it? We don't know. Does he even need to? He sees Jesus now in front of him. Does he even need to? No, he has all the proof that he needs. And then he challenges him, have you come to believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. This phrase is sometimes called the last beatitude. You know, we have the beatitudes in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those, There's eight. Actually, technically there's nine because there's one after the eighth one. This is sometimes called the tenth and final beatitude. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Just as Adam had disobedience, disbelief. Jesus, through his sign, through his woundedness, brings down and restores new faith. And then Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. I wonder what those were. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. This is all that John is saying, or the writer of this is saying, this is all you need to know. This is the essential thing you need to know. The ministry of Jesus, the signs he worked, and the fact that he rose from the dead. The central event. There's no other religious tradition in history that was sparked from a singular event. It's usually from a community that starts to grow. They start to have some agreement. They have some experience of God. And then they start expanding. They start defining what they believe. But there's no singular religious tradition except for Christianity that begins because of one powerful, significant event like the resurrection. Just Christianity. That's the power of the witness of the resurrection. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there's no reason we should be here. The Eucharist is just a weird version of the Passover that we're practicing 2,000 years later that means nothing. The sacraments have no grace, no presence of the Holy Spirit if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But we believe that he did. And we have a massive amount of insurmountable evidence to support that which, unfortunately, I don't have time to get into tonight, so time is up. But uh, I'll be talking about that this coming Sunday at our Catholicism 101 presentation after the 9 a.m. Mass here in the church, or here in the hall. So if you want to hear some of that, please come to that. Um, so I think, concluding, there's so much more I want to say but that we don't have time for. But to think about, uh, as you reflect on this this coming week, um, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, first of all. If you've been baptized, if you've been confirmed, the Holy Spirit is in you. Holy Spirit is animating you. Holy Spirit is part of who you are and is seeking to bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, to give you a new understanding, a deeper sense of truth, and a deeper experience of God's grace. And so are you going to be open to that this week, this Easter season? Are you going to let your unbelieving, your doubt, your inability to trust, or your fear maybe at how you'll be perceived by others to get in the way? Or are you going to let that aside? There's one story that I love to share, and then we'll finish here. Uh, I was reading this article once about the most profound advice that people had ever uh, received from anyone. And this woman was writing as, as a very older woman recounting the story when she was young at a local swimming pool. And she was standing on the diving board at about like eight years old. And she's standing on the very edge, and she's been there for about five minutes. And this older woman swims up to her, and she says, um, what's going on, honey? Are you afraid? And she's like, yeah, I'm afraid to dive in. 
And so the old woman looked at her and said, okay, be afraid, and then do it anyway. And she dove in the water, and she never forgot that moment. And I think as Christians, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, that's such a good thing to remember this Easter season. Be afraid, but do it anyway, because the Holy Spirit is empowering you and giving you an ability to do things that you cannot do on your own. So let's be open to that. Not let fear get in the way. Acknowledge it, but set it aside, because the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God is so far beyond that, so far surpassing that even encountering us in our midst.